Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Our planet is wrapped in 40 million miles of roads, and cars kill a million animals and more than 300 million birds each year just in America alone. In his new book, Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet, journalist and author Ben Goldfarb examines the impact of our roads on the natural world and how we can minimize noise and habitat destruction and engineer a system with bridges for bears, tunnels for turtles, and other accommodations for our fellow creatures. We'll talk with Goldfarb about the urgent need for a greater understanding of road ecology. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In the face of an oncoming vehicle, quote, tortoises withdraw, armadillos are oddly jump, timber rattlesnakes freeze, confident in their venom. For thousands of years, these stand-your-ground strategies fended off coyotes and hawks, writes Ben Goldfarb. But against automobiles, they were worse than useless. Our nation's massive system of roads has had a catastrophic effect on animal species, causing death and injury, changes in migration habits, disruption of gene pools. Have you ever hit a wild animal with your car? Some creatures are adapting, and some humans are putting their ingenuity and compassion toward helping them survive. But as Goldfarb shows us in his new book, Crossings, the impact of roads and traffic has been profound. Ben Goldfarb joins me now. Welcome to Forum, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to have you. God, it really does feel so awful, doesn't it, when you hit an animal with your car? <laughs> the odds just feel so stacked against them. It's it's the worst feeling, yeah. I, I hit an owl uh, a couple of weeks ago that just oh. suddenly flew in front of my, my windshield late at night, and I was miserable. I had to pull over and uh, take a few minutes to compose myself because it is it is the worst feeling. And, I mean... Well, do help us understand just how destructive roads and vehicles have been for animal species. I quoted some stats in the billboard about a million or so a year in terms of just car collisions alone. But you think that's an underestimate, an undercount, right? 
Yeah, I mean it's it's actually it's actually a, a million a day is the is the estimate. Oh my god! Which is which is just completely completely mind blowing, right? It's it sounds like uh, you know it can't possibly be true, and and yet that is likely an underestimate, as you as you say, you know that statistic or that estimate comes from uh, you know some old humane society surveys back in the 1960s. So likely the the toll is much higher than that, um, and you know for many threatened and endangered species like the Florida panther and the tiger salamander uh, and the Hawaiian goose, you know, roadkill isn't just uh, an inconvenience or, a, or a, you know, a minor problem. It's, a, it's actually potentially an extinction level threat. Yeah, that's what's kind of incredible, because I think that a lot of us feel like, well, animals that tend to be killed on the roads are animals that are not really endangered, typically. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. You know, we've we've all seen the deer carcass or the raccoon or the squirrel, right? These very abundant animals, uh, you know, for which roadkill probably is not, uh, you know, an, an existential threat. And I think because those are the conspicuous critters that we tend to see by the side of the highway, you know, we tend to uh, sort of understate um, what a, a true biological catastrophe roadkill really is. But there's there's no question that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the primary forces in, you know, our current mass extinction event, the sixth extinction. And it's not just the extinction of really rare animals. It's also, you know, the loss of abundance of relatively common ones. You know, I, I grew up in uh, in the Northeast and, you know, we're, our ponds were full of snapping turtles and leopard frogs, you know, and those animals aren't going extinct, but they've become much less uh, common over time. And, and certainly roadkill is a, a major contributor to that. And what's so sad is just the extent to which you write about how reptiles and amphibians gravitate towards roads because of the warm surfaces and so on of asphalt and so- and the like. Yeah, exactly. I was I was driving around uh, northern New Mexico recently, uh, early in the morning, and and uh, my wife and I actually pulled over. The, there was a, a prairie rattlesnake uh, on the side of the highway on the shoulder, which was obviously sunning itself, you know, and 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 basking on the the warm pavement. And, you know, I took my fishing rod and kind of nudged him off into the grass. But it was a really vivid illustration of how the road can become this kind of ecological trap, as scientists call it, this ecosystem, essentially, that lures animals in uh, to this very dangerous place. And, you know, birds, 340 million is that a year or a day? That's that's that's, that's a, yeah, that's a year. Okay, thank God. And like <laughs> billions of pollinating insects as well that we don't even account for. Right. No, it's 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 truly it's truly tragic. And uh, I mean, certainly, you know, the birds are are kind of a. A, a, a seemingly intractable problem, you know. I think that, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about, uh, you know, about wildlife crossings. You know, these special structures that we build to allow animals to cross roads safely. And you know, birds kind of uh, they kind of challenge that uh, because you know they they uh, there's there's not a whole lot you can do for the owl that swooped in front of my uh, my car a couple of weeks back. And and uh, it, it's yeah, it's just the worst feeling in the world again to hit these, you know, sort of completely uh, sort of innocent creatures that, you know, uh, their only mistake was blundering into the infrastructure that, that we'd built. And, you know, as you as you pointed out in the, the section that you, you read at the, at the start, you know, roads have this way of kind of hijacking evolutionary history, right? Animals are sort of evolved to, to stand their ground and, and to, uh, you know, use their, you know, their, their defenses, you know, whether it's, that's a turtle withdrawing or a porcupine having quills or a skunk spraying, you know, and birds are, are the same in that they tend to take off 
based on how far away a predator is rather than how fast it's moving, right? And that makes sense when the predator is a, you know, a fox slowly skulking through the, the underbrush, but it doesn't make sense when it's, you know, an F-250 barreling down the highway at 70 miles an hour. So, you know, roads and cars really subvert evolution in a, a pernicious way. We're talking with Ben Goldfarb about how roads are affecting ecosystems and animal species. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions about the impact of roads and traffic on wildlife or if you've ever had any experiences hitting a wild animal with a car or trying to watch wildlife try to cross the road and, and the feelings that that brought up for you. What effects from roads have you noticed or wondered about on an animal species near you? You can email forum at kqed.org, find us on our social channels at KQED Forum, or call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And yes, you know, the shocking way you think birds would have a chance against automobiles, but they haven't with the, the numbers that you cite in your book. At the same time, though, you do talk about the swallow and how the swallow did develop these adaptations, did evolve to better survive our roads and cars. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, I think that's that's really an amazing story because it, it illustrates how adaptive animals are and, and also how thoroughly roads have dominated the planet. They're influencing evolution itself. So the, the story there, it's, it was a kind of a study conducted uh, by Charles Brown, who's a swallow researcher uh, in Nebraska. And, you know, and, and I'm sure many listeners are familiar with cliff swallows, these birds that build these mud nests on the underside of highway overpasses and, and bridges. So they live, uh, you know, very close to traffic in, in many cases. And, you know, sometimes become victims of roadkill as a result. But what, what Charles Brown found over many decades of research is that swallow roadkill has dramatically declined over time. Uh, and the reason for that uh, is that their wings have become shorter. And you can sort of imagine that if, you know, if you're a bird, having a, a long wing is good for flying long, straight lines, um, whereas having shorter wings is good for making lots of little tight rolls and, and, uh, and pirouettes and avoiding, you know, the barreling 18-wheeler coming down the, the highway. So over time, the, those long-winged birds were weeded from the population, uh, and cliff swallows actually evolved to have shorter wings and, and thus be able to better avoid uh, traffic, which again is just this incredible illustration, I think, of how, you know, roads have shaped the very DNA of, uh, of, of many species. Yeah, making them warm and improving their maneuverability, I guess, around these vehicles. You exactly, also write about yeah. how roads select winners as well as losers. C can you talk about some of the creatures that have won as a result of roads to some degree? Sure. You know, I mean, roads are roads are ecosystems, right? And every, you know, every ecosystem has its kind of its dominant players, its beneficiaries. And, you know, you could think about scavenging birds, for example, you know, all of all of the, uh, you know, the turkey vultures and black vultures and golden eagles and bald eagles uh, that, you know, 10,000 years ago were uh, feasting on mammoths and mastodons. Well, you know, the, 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 the necrobiome, the kind of the ecosystem or the community of organisms that uh, revolve around dead animals, around carrion, you know, 
roads have kind of revived that necrobiome in, in some ways and, and uh, become a really important resource um, for, you know, for some of these, these scavengers. But, you know, the road's also a really dangerous resource, right? You could imagine, uh, you know, a golden eagle that sits down atop a, a, a deer or elk carcass and, you know, and feasts for a while. Well, that animal, that, that, that eagle has a belly full of venison and doesn't achieve liftoff very quickly, right? And, and mm. often becomes victims of roadkill uh, them, themselves. So the road is, again, it's, it's potentially a resource. It has some, some, something to offer for, you know, for some species, but it's also always a, a really dangerous place for the animals that enter its, its uh, purview. Yeah, I was struck by your description of how butterflies have been able to benefit a little bit, at least from roadside native plants or wild plants. Yeah, exactly. You know, especially in in uh, in, in the Midwest, uh, you know, where so much of the landscape is corn and soy monoculture. You know, those roadside strips of vegetation are some of the last native prairie left out there. And you know, there's lots of milkweed out there for monarch butterflies, especially. And just sort of by coincidence, uh, you know, the 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 path of the of the migrating Midwestern monarch butterfly perfectly parallels I-35, uh, you know, through America's breadbasket and, you know, and, and the various state transportation departments in the Midwest have kind of worked together to create what's known as the Monarch Highway, you know, this kind of long strip of, uh, of, of prairie, essentially, bordering I-35 uh, that could theoretically sustain monarchs on their journey. But again, you know, it's, that's, that's, that's also fraught in, in, uh, in various ways, right? You know, we don't really think about insects as being roadkill, but, you know, certainly millions of monarch butterflies uh, are killed by cars every year during their during their migration. So, you know, yes, the road has something to offer, um, but there's always that risk of, of, you know, creating an ecological trap and, and luring animals into uh, a dangerous situation. Sure. On balance, it sounds like uh, it's a pretty significant cause of decline in biodiversity and, and habitat. You mentioned road ecology earlier. We're coming up on a break, but do you just want to say a few words quickly about what you mean by road ecology? Yeah, road ecology is is the study of how roads shape nature and and how roads influence wildlife and plants and the natural world and and how we manage those impacts. You know, we've been talking a lot about roadkill because that's the sort of the most conspicuous impact of the road. And it's, you know, what road ecology has been concerned with for a hundred years. But, you know, that's certainly the tip of the iceberg, right? There's noise pollution. There's the disruption of migrations. There's, uh, you know, the road salt that we're applying. There are the tire particles that are, you know, poisoning fish in some places. So road ecology is sort of the effort to understand all of those impacts impacts and figure out how to address them. Well, we will get into those after the break. Stay with us. We'll have more with Ben Goldfarb. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tomorrow, Jane Goodall joins us for part of the hour as we talk about the future of the conservation movement. Ever since she observed chimpanzees using sticks to fish for termites 60 years ago, the line she thought divided humans from the rest of the animal kingdom disappeared. You can share your questions for Goodall ahead of the show or in a voicemail at 415-553-3300. Today, we're talking with Ben Goldfarb, journalist and author of Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. And you, our listeners, are invited to join with your questions about the impact of roads and traffic on wildlife, what effects from roads that you've noticed or wondered about on an animal species near you. What's the most interesting wildlife crossing you've seen? Have you seen wildlife crossings implemented near your local roads? Email forum at kqed.org. Call us at 866-733-6786. Post on our social channels. We're at KQED Forum. And let me go to caller Annette in Sacramento. Annette, you're on. Hey, good morning. Um, The area I live in has a tremendous wild turkey population. And there are times of the year when they're everywhere on our front lawns, walking down the sidewalk with all their babies. And I've noticed that when they walk along the neighborhood, they walk everywhere. But when they cross the street, they run. They have somehow learned that they must run across the road to avoid the traffic. And it's just in a neighborhood. It's not on a busy street. But how did they learn that? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Ben. What do you think? Is that true? Yeah, you know, it's it's amazing to see some of these behavioral adaptations that, uh, you know, that, that animals have, have undertaken. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's so funny that caller mentioned turkeys. I, I used to live in Spokane, Washington, which has this really big kind of urban turkey population. And what I'd see sometimes is actually the, the tom, you know, the male turkey, acting as crossing guard, essentially, standing in the middle of the road while all of the females cross, uh, which is this, you know, again, kind of this incredible learned adaptation, right? You know, wildlife are uh, incredible incredibly flexible and, and, you know, I think in many cases uh, much smarter uh, than we give them credit for. And they've, you know, the, in many cases, they've become really good at navigating our infrastructure. You know, the the, coy- the coyotes of Chicago uh, very famously uh, cross at the crosswalks at, uh, at, at red lights, you know, like any human pedestrian. Uh, you know, there are, there are crows in Japan who will take nuts and place their nuts at the intersection so that cars crack the nuts for them. And then they'll scurry <laughs> wow. out at the red light and pick up the nuts. So, you know, we've, we've created this incredibly destructive uh, infrastructure, and yet animals are, are learning to take advantage of it and, and survive amongst it. And turkeys are an example of that. I think we have another turkey call. Cheryl in Berkeley, join <laughs> us. You're on. Oh, hi. Yeah, I, I was driving down Martin Luther King in Berkeley, and I this was just this past week, and there was a turkey, a female turkey, all by herself, crossing the street. And there was traffic because it was about three thirty in the afternoon, and I was I was a wreck. I was so worried about that turkey get making it to the other side. But as we as I slowed down, a lot of other people slowed down, and I stopped and 
the bird just kept going, but I never did finally see if she made it to the other side because yeah. I had to be someplace, and oh. I felt so bad. Well, your compassion for the turkey is really, really sweet, Cheryl. And, uh, you know, just hearing both Annette and Cheryl talking about turkeys on the move, I, I mean, animals are on the move. They're constantly moving, right? Which is why roads can be so disruptive to them, to their migratory paths. Right, Ben? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Animals, as, as you say, have to, they have to move across large landscapes in, in many cases to find all of the things they need to survive, food and habitat and shelter and mates and roads get in the way of that. And it's not just the collisions themselves that are the issue, right? It's, it's that constant stream of traffic that deters many animals from migrating and moving altogether. Uh, you know, one chapter of, of my book is about uh, mule deer in, in Wyoming. And, you know, there are these big herds of migratory mule deer. And, and you know, in, in winter, they have to get down to sort of these low elevation valleys where, you know, the snow is relatively light and they can, they can find food. And I-80 prevents them from doing that. And again, it's not the roadkill, right? It's just the, it's the constant traffic that just repels them. So, you know, some years, uh, they'll, they'll actually, large numbers of the herd will actually starve because they're kind of pooled up against the road and they can't get to that, that winter range they need. And, you know, in some cases, I think that can actually be worse than the roadkill, right? A, you know, a big herd of mule deer or elk or, or antelope, uh, you know, they can survive a few collisions. Uh, you know, what they can't survive is, is losing all of that habitat and kind of the, you know, the, the starvation that can ensue. So, you know, I think that that's kind of the, you know, the paradox of roads in some ways is that, you know, the roads themselves are relatively narrow structures, you know, maybe they're 150 feet wide or so, and yet they're affecting animals' access to, in some cases, millions of acres of, of potential habitat. Habitat. So their habitat loss on a huge scale, even if the road itself is a relatively narrow strip of pavement. It was also amazing, you, you touched on this really briefly before the break, that aquatic animals are also not spared the impacts of roads. Yeah, cer- certainly not. You know, there are, there are many examples of that. You know, uh, salmon are, are sort of case in point. You know, they have to migrate upriver to spawn. And, you know, every place where their stream crosses a road, you know, that stream is sort of funneled through a, a little pipe, uh, a culvert. Um, and, you know, those culverts, they're, you know, many of them are too small. Uh, so they kind of concentrate the force of the stream into this fire hose that, you know, that prevents the salmon from swimming up. Uh, you know, many kind of become derelict over time and, and the fish just can't pass them. Um, and, you know, as a result, again, salmon, you know, like mule deer or antelope, you know, have lost access to, to huge amounts of potential spawning habitat, you know, certainly in California, Oregon, Washington, um, other, you know, other places with, uh, you know, with these, these migratory fish. Um, and that's a, that's a huge crisis. And again, it's a pretty invisible one, right? We drive over those culverts, those stream crossings every day and never notice them. And yet they're having enormous aquatic impacts for, uh, for, for fish and fish and wildlife. Well, this listener writes, auto supply stores sell deer whistles that produce a sound that we can't hear, but deer can. Are these worthwhile? And will other animals also be alerted to danger? It's a great question. The, the deer whistles have been pretty widely debunked, unfortunately. Uh, you know, deer signs also don't uh, don't seem to work very well. You know, drivers tend to uh, habituate them uh, or habituate to them and and ignore them. Right? I, there's a, a deer sign, uh, you know, not too far from where, where I live that says, uh, you know, deer crossing next 30 miles. Right? Nobody's going to remain alert for 30 miles. So you know, the the, the signage and the whistles, unfortunately, are are not uh, not very effective. 
Well, talk about the noise pollution from roads. Um, I was really struck by just their incredible effect on animals. Yeah, you know, noise pollution is, it's, it's, again, one of those impacts that I think we don't always think about it, probably because we're, we are ourselves so awash in, in road noise constantly, right? You hear the, you know, the grumble of engines in your neighborhood or kind of the hiss of the, you know, the interstate, uh, which is produced mostly by tire noise, actually, not, not engine noise. Uh, and, but, you know, but, but sort of secretly or covertly, you know, that, that, noise pollution is having tremendous impacts on our own lives and health. You know, there are many studies showing that, you know, road noise pollution uh, elevates our, our blood pressure and stress levels and makes us more susceptible to cardiac disease and stroke and, uh, you know, is literally taking years off of our, our off of our lives. Uh, and, you know, road noise is similarly detrimental to wild animals. You know, if you're, uh, you know, I mean, uh, imagine the the owl uh, that we were talking about earlier. You know, that's, a, that's an animal that has to constantly listen for the rustle of its prey's footsteps in the grass. And if, if the noise of traffic masks those subtle acoustic symbols or signals, uh, you know, owls can't live in that area, right? So road noise pollution is a, a form of habitat loss that's driving animals uh, away from these large areas, even if the road itself is, is relatively narrow. Hmm. Well, let me go to caller Gail in Pinole. Hi, Gail. You're on. Join us. Hi. Um, can you hear me okay? I can. Go right ahead. Okay. I, I, uh, I had an owl story as well, very similar to your guest's um, owl story. I was living in rural Wisconsin, and uh, I was coming home. It was getting into winter months so it was quite cold and it was dark and a owl swooped i hit him in the um off the, he glanced off my windshield and i pulled over and stopped and he was still breathing i sat there for a while feeling pretty awful and watching him and finally i decided he wasn't passing right away so i put him in my car not knowing what to do really and as luck would have it he came too in the warmer car by the time i got home and um, we were able to get him into a, a wildlife a wildlife rehab place, and uh, he lived to fly and hunt again. So we released him about uh, three months later, right where he got hit. So I would encourage people if they have the resources or the the inclination to ch- stop and check and see if the animal might might not be recoverable. Wow, Gail, that's an incredible story. Ben, I'm curious what that brings up for you as Gail is describing, you know, this injured owl that was able to be brought back to to health. Yeah, that's a, a wonderful story, and and Gail, thank you for for going to that effort. That's that's uh, that's really really fantastic, and I I think that 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 shows that you know people are at at base compassionate right nobody wants to hit an animal and and you know even though we drive past carcasses all the time uh you know there i think that the the average person um is is fundamentally uh negatively impacted by roadkill or or you know or or i mean has compassion for for wildlife as as Gail does and you know certainly nobody wants to you know be part of the problem right even though you know we we sort of uh, inevitably are as we as we drive around so you know that's kind of the, one of the wonderful things about um, this issue of of road impacts to wildlife and you know and, and interventions like wildlife crossings that can prevent those those uh, those negative consequences is that you know they tend to be really popular you know kind of nonpartisan solutions you know they they 
poll in public incredibly well. Uh, you know, transportation departments are increasingly interested in you know supporting uh, these these interventions like wildlife crossings that uh, that prevent animal vehicle collisions. And I think that just attests to what Gail is saying that you know that that we're we're all concerned for the animals uh, in in our midst, and and you know nobody wants to be part of this problem. Yeah, well, Susan writes, many years ago, my mother was on her way to work in Calabasas in Southern California. She ran over and killed a rattlesnake that she didn't see until too late, pulled over to the side of the road and sobbed that she killed this beautiful animal. My amazing mother taught me a lot that day. You know, that said, Ben, I have to say I was sad to hear what a death sentence and injury from a vehicle can be to an animal as well. You know, with regard to, to the impact of cars, noise pollution, and so on, can electric vehicles help because they're quieter? Yeah, it's you know it's a, a really interesting question. I mean, I mean certainly in in some instances uh, they'll be helpful. Um, you know, in in sort of n- in neighborhood situations, uh, you know, where people are driving at relatively low speeds. Um, you know, certainly electric vehicles will reduce that those kinds of neighborhood uh, noise pollution problems, and and uh, and and thus you know probably make a contribution to public health. But you know, at highway speeds, what you're hearing is is not the engine; it's really the tires. Um, so you know, so so EVs are you know, not going to help reduce the the noise pollution issues from uh, you know from big freeways. Uh, although tires are also getting getting quieter over time, which is which is a good thing. Um, but you know, I think I think more broadly, uh, you know, the the EV issue raises you know something that I, I try to address in the book, which is that I think when we when we think about the the environmental impacts of transportation, we tend to think about car's contribution to climate change, right? We're driving around, we're, you know, we're using gasoline, we're, we're emitting carbon, uh, and we're warming the planet. And certainly that's a, you know, that's a, a big issue, right? About a quarter of, of, uh, American, of America's admis- emissions come from transportation. But, you know, I think that what I'm trying to say in this book is that, you know, the electrification of the fleet, um, although, you know, certainly a positive, uh, is not going to do anything for that rattlesnake or those owls, you know, or, or uh, you know, all of the salmon that are, uh, you know, impacted by uh, faulty road culverts, uh, you know, at stream crossings, right? There are all of these other ecological impacts from our car-based transportation network. And, you know, taking the carbon out by electrifying vehicles is, is not going to solve uh, the vast majority of those, those impacts. And we need to be thinking about them. Yeah, it certainly won't make us less car dependent, it sounds like. You're worried about... Right. Self-driving cars, meaning that we're essentially going to be driving all the time, never giving these creatures a reprieve. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. You know, I mean, one of the things that's kind of limited uh, suburban sprawl in, in some cases is, you know, is, is commute times, right? Nobody wants to commute too far. But, you know, when your car uh, drives itself, you know, and you can just sit in the back seat doing work or watching Netflix or whatever, uh, you know, there's there's less of a, of a, a barrier to commuting. And it, you could certainly imagine that people will, you know, commute more and, and longer distances and, and drive more um, or at least be driven by their by their their vehicle. You know, I mean, every modeling study that's been done in this issue basically shows that, you know, autonomy uh, is likely to lead to a, a net increase in, in vehicle miles traveled. And, and you know, certainly uh, that's not good for wildlife, even if, you know, our AVs are ultimately better at uh, avoiding a few deer than we are. Well, we're talking with Ben Goldfarb, conservation journalist, author of Crossings. We're talking about how roads are affecting ecosystems and animal species on land and sea, about the adaptations animals are making and and what we can do to make things better for the creatures with whom we share this planet. Anessa in Grass Valley is on the line. Anessa, join us. 
Uh, hi there. Um, I just wanted to talk about uh, the Salish Kootenai tribes in Montana who um, negotiated with the state to uh, put up a really extensive network of highway crossings for animals um, there on Highway 93 and give props to that tribe. Um, and was wondering if you had researched them at all or um, looked into that area and that happened in the early 2000s and um, they have very large underground culverts as well as overpasses at least one overpass um, you know for grizzly bears fish turtles Um, really interesting really well done um, uh, as um, and I believe really effective yeah Anessa thanks Uh, Ben the wildlife crossings that that Anessa is talking about, and and yeah, you've written quite a bit about just how how important they are and how successful they've been. Absolutely, yeah, and I'm I'm so glad that that caller brought up those crossings in particular on Highway 93 in Montana because that was actually how I first got interested in this in this topic uh, in in the fall of 2013, in almost exactly a decade ago. Uh, I had the opportunity to take a tour of, of those those wildlife crossings, and as Anessa said, there are about 40 crossings uh, on this stretch of Highway 93, which the the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes advocated for when uh, the Montana Department of Transportation was expanding the highway. You know, the, the tribes basically said, you know, the, the road is a visitor. That was their their beautiful term. Um, and, you know, it should be it should be part of the land rather than kind of dominating the land. And, you know, and, and working with the Department of Transportation, um, you know, they ultimately they put in uh, 40 or so of these crossings. And as, as uh, Anessa said, there's everything from these, you know, these little subtle culverts that you would, uh, you know, never notice as you drive over for turtles and and meadow voles and other other small critters to you know larger underpasses for elk and deer and you know and then there's this big beautiful overpass um, for grizzly bears and moose and, and other other critters and in 2013 I, I had the opportunity to go up on that overpass uh, which was just an incredible experience you know it was, it was really beautiful there's so much that we do on this planet to make animals lives harder and more dangerous and you know here was this kind of beautiful expression of ecological empathy led by the tribes um you know we spent or we the public had spent you know millions of dollars on on these these crossings and that just seemed like a a beautiful idea to me that you know we would build infrastructure for wild animals and it also seemed like a fascinating intellectual challenge um you know how do you create uh, a built structure that appeals to a, a grizzly bear or an elk or a moose uh you know how do you perceive the the land and the built world through their eyes so it was you know it was actually that that those those wildlife crossings on Highway 93 that the caller referenced that got me started on this journey uh, a decade ago. Ben Goldfarb, he's also the author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. You might know him for that work. His new book is Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. Stay with us for more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence. 
June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Ben Goldfarb writes, Name your environmental ill, dams, poaching, megafires, and consider that roads kill more creatures with less fanfare than any of them. Goldfarb's new book is Crossings, and it examines the impact of our planet's 40 million miles of roads on the natural world. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions about the effects of roads that you've noticed or wondered about on animal species, Moo on Discord writes, I appreciate Ben's highlighting of wildlife crossings, especially the one in Germany. I also liked his previous mention of deliberately designing the roads to cause drivers to keep to a lower speed. I wasn't sure if those roads are just designed to mimic their landscape. It does remind me of mountain switchbacks and staying slow for safety, as well as having the time to appreciate the natural world outside the car window. Ben, do you want to just talk a little bit about the major wildlife crossing that's being planned in Agora, uh, you know, right in L.A. County on the border of L.A. and Ventura County, considered to be the largest wildlife crossing in the U.S. when complete? Yeah, certainly. And, you know, and at this point, absolutely the most the most famous. And, and uh, you know, I'm sure many listeners are familiar with the the outlines of this this story. But, you know, the kind of the short version is that, uh, you know, there's this little population of mountain lions uh, in the Santa Monica Mountains, um, which is hemmed in by freeways, uh, you know, the busiest freeways in, in the country, essentially, you know, the 101 and the 405. Uh, and, you know, as a result of, of those freeways, um, you know, this this population of mountain lions is in really deep trouble. Uh, you know, they've, they've essentially, because they can't disperse out of their little patch of habitat and because new lions can't really make it in, um, you know, they've, they've basically become very inbred over time. And, you know, individual male mountain lions have, have mated with their own daughters and granddaughters and even great-granddaughters. And, you know, they've begun to uh, suffer genetic defects as a result. And, uh, you know, scientists have written they've kind of entered this extinction vortex. You know, they're sort of long-term doomed if they don't, um, you know, if they don't have some kind of intervention done on, on their behalf. And, you know, P-22, uh, you know, the most famous wild animal in the in the, the world, uh, essentially, you know, sort of the avatar of this this population, right? He's kind of the one that escaped and ended up in uh, in, in Griffith Park. Um, so, you know, over over many years of, of sort of advocacy and, and planning, uh, you know, this this wildlife crossing is being created. Uh, it's being you know, it's being built right now. It'll be done by 2025 for these mountain lions specifically, but also for all of the other members of the ecosystem as well. You know, mountain lions are sort of the, the flagship um, for, you know, the loss of connectivity in the, in, you know, in, in the Santa Monica Mountains. But, you know, there are also, you know, mule deer and coyotes and bobcats and, and skinks. You know, there are all of these different animals that are sort of suffering from, uh, you know, from the, these, these freeways, especially the, the 101. So the, the solution is, you know, the Wallace-Annenberg Wildlife Crossing, this enormous, beautiful overpass that, again, is, is being built right now and will hopefully allow 
fresh blood to enter this population and allow, you know, young male mountain lions to disperse out of the population and just reconnect this uh, little patch of habitat um, with the rest of California. And, you know, it's really become, again, likely the most famous wildlife crossing in, in the country and, and uh, you know, possibly the world because there's been you know, so much wonderful attention for it. And I think it's really helping to galvanize new wildlife crossings um, in California and, uh, and beyond. So that's a really wonderful project and uh, it's, it's catalyzing a, a lot of great, great action. Well, let me go to caller Chico next. Chico in the South Bay, you're on. Hi, um, in the peninsula, actually, San Francisco. I just wanted to make a couple of comments. One of them was regarding the term, I think it was ecosystem regarding roadways. And I've never considered roadways ecosystems. I don't know what he means by that, but it seems like there's a misnomer or possibly a misleading, you know, and I'm sure the oil companies and the oil industry loves that term being used about roads because I'm sure they benefit from getting people to get on the roads even more. Uh, but another thing is, what, what's uh, your guest's opinion regarding the roads? For Native peoples, it's never been a good thing necessarily because mm -hmm. of the fact that they go through our, our territories, our sacred lands, and burial sites. And is there any way to go around that through cultural easements or anything as, as a maybe some kind of protocol to, that uh, has respect towards those type of issues? Uh, Chico, thanks. Uh, your thoughts, Ben, on Chico's... Well, he's got two points there, but Chico's point about you know, road ecosystems and how that can be co-opted in a way to try to maybe do things that benefit more people who have a future invested in more roads. Yeah, it's you know it's it's a it's a a good a good point, and you know and, and certainly I would you know I would not I would not want to be a, a contributor to you know, greenwashing, uh, you know, our, our incredibly destructive car culture. I mean, certainly that's not, you know, not my, not my intent. I think, I think my point in calling roads ecosystems is that they're, they're novel ecosystems, right? And, you know, and humans have created novel ecosystems all over the world. You know, a, a reservoir behind a dam is a novel ecosystem, you know, an, an environment created by human intervention, um, you know, and, and that, that has, again, animals and, and organisms who, who benefit and, and many, many who lose. So just because, you know, an ecosystem is, uh, just because a, a road is an ecosystem doesn't mean it's, it's a, a salutary or beneficial uh, or happy ecosystem. Um, but, you know, again, there, you know, their animals have learned to live in this landscape in this intensely roaded landscape uh, in, in various ways. And, and, uh, you know, certainly um, that's not their preference. And, and, uh, you know, roads again, are, as we've been discussing, are immensely destructive. Um, but in calling them an ecosystem, you know, I think I'm, I'm simply trying to call attention to the fact that, you know, we've created this new category of place, essentially, uh, you know, these, these long linear strips of asphalt and, and, uh, you know, many wildlife, have, many wildlife species have learned to live along alongside them and take advantage of them, um, even if it's, you know, ultimately certainly very, very detrimental to nature. Do you know anything about mitigating their intrusiveness, you know, to indigenous people or on sacred lands? Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, every every transportation department has has uh, has archaeologists uh, on on staff, you know, who who um, you know attempt to uh, you know avoid those those culturally important and, and sacred sacred sites. But absolutely, you know, that your callers of, of course completely right that you know the vast majority of our uh, you know of our, our of our highways were built without any regard for for native people or ecosystems, uh, and you know did a huge amounts of destruction. You know, roads were sort of the you know the original tool 
symbol of conquest in a lot of ways. They were, you know, the, the, the way in which, I mean, you know, so, so many early roads were built by the U.S. Army, uh, you know, specifically to sort of, you know, conquer, uh, you know, the, the American landscape and, and, uh, and force out uh, indigenous people. So roads have always been tools of colonialism and, and subjugation, and, and we're saddled with that legacy. Martina Discord writes, I remember studies coming out of COVID lockdown about songbirds in San Francisco being able to sing more complex songs when traffic was shut down and noise pollution reduced. I believe truck transportation traffic stayed pretty intense from 2020 on. But did any studies come out of that traffic reduction during the months of lockdown that helped show what kind of and levels of change we could make to reduce traffic and road impacts on wildlife? He wrote about this. Ben, do you want to talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the um, the anthropause, as as researchers have called it, this you know this brief period in in the spring of 2020 when we shut down traffic was you know sort of the the largest inadvertent experiment in the history of uh, of road ecology. Um, you know that that uh, writer is exactly right. That uh, you know there was some fantastic research in the Bay Area showing that that uh, that white crowned sparrows sang more more complex and intricate songs when they didn't have to you know scream over the the constant din of traffic um, and there you know there were some some fascinating roadkill studies that came out of that uh, that that period as well uh, you know Fraser Schilling with the with um, uh, the Center for Road Ecology at, at uh, UC Davis uh, you know he basically he, he did this fantastic study looking at you know just a few states California Idaho and and Maine I think uh, and showed that you know that large animal collisions, uh, in those states fell dramatically, uh, you know, during during early COVID. And, you know, if you extrapolate out to all of the small animals as well, which, you know, aren't being quantified by uh, basically anybody. Um, and, you know, and you, and you sort of look internationally, you know, I mean, certainly uh, COVID, you know, spared many, many millions and probably billions of, of, uh, of wild animals. And of course, you know, that's, a, that's a, hor- a horrible way to go about saving animal lives, right? Nobody wants to repeat COVID or, or those, those shutdowns. But, you know, I think it, it just highlights what a, a severe issue this really is. You know, when you, when you dramatically or drastically shut off roadkill, uh, it just, uh, you know, it just goes to show how constant and, and ubiquitous it is in our, our daily lives. Yes, it is. It is really incredible. It is hopeful and wonderful to see how quickly animals will return or react to the anthropause, as you say. But the ubiquity piece was something that I was really struck by just in thinking about, do you feel like, Ben, that the ubiquity of roads is really what stopped us from realizing just how profoundly devastating they can be? Yeah, I think it's I think it's the ubiquity and I think it's it's their it's their cultural valence as well, right? Roads to us are these symbols of movement and mobility and freedom. You know, all of our, you know, great uh, mid-century uh, writers and artists and, uh, you know, and musicians celebrate the open road, right? I mean, it's, you know, Kerouac and Springsteen. Uh, and I think that idea of, of you know, the, of the road as this, again, this avatar of, of human freedom is just so deeply ingrained in the American cultural consciousness that, uh, you know, as, as a result, we fail to consider that, you know, for wild animals, it means exactly the opposite, right? Right. It's it's a, you know, roads curtail their mobility and movement and, and migration. And I think that's kind of the the irony of roads is that, you know, the the, the connection that they have facilitated in our own species uh, is exactly what they deny to, to other organisms. Yeah, you write about how the national park system encouraged people to drive there so that they could get back into nature and connect with wildlife and see America's natural heritage. 
while at the same time you're talking about how cars, the speeds at which they they go, the the way that we're seated within them, stop us from even noticing how many animals and creatures we may kill. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think that that point about about the National Park Service is a fascinating one because it you know it it shows that. You know, cars are, are not just part of our, our sort of a national consciousness. They're actually deeply embedded in the history of conservation, right? It was, you know, I mean, those those early parks like like Yosemite and Yellowstone, you know, those were sort of designed as, as uh, you know, what historians have called windshield wildernesses, right? Places you're sort of meant to see primarily uh, in, in your car, you know, and, and the accessibility of those national parks for automotive tourism, you know, really helped to grow the constituency for for preserving those places. Um, and, you know, roads are still the way that we access uh, nature and the outdoors and wildlife today. You know, I live in Colorado and three times a week I'm, you know, driving up some forest service dirt road to get to a trailhead or a, an alpine lake or a fishing hole or a, a campground or something, right? So roads are how we experience nature and they've been fundamental to the history of conservation in America, even as they're destroying nature. I think that's, a, again, one of the great ironies of roads. Yeah, such complexity. Well, this is a fundraising period for many public radio stations, and I want to remind listeners that you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Noel writes, I often think about how much the automobile has changed the landscape, and with that, our social interactions, both good and bad. I look around the city and imagine what it was like before it was transformed by cars. Tim writes, everyone should bike a lot more. I've biked across the U.S. twice and seen hundreds of roadkill each time. Thankfully, riding my bike, I did not create any roadkill. If anyone biked a lot more, if everyone biked a lot more, we would save a lot of animals' lives as well as human lives and solve most of the other major problems facing us right now. Minga writes, back in the 60s when I was a teen driving a 1954 Plymouth in anger after having had an argument with a parent, A lovely little bluebird hit the windshield. I had to go find a vet. I turned the car around and drove back to town, handling the gears with just one hand. The poor thing died in my other hand on the way to town, and I have never in all this time gotten over it. I buried the bird in a shoebox in my parents' yard. The sadness of having killed that lovely little bird, having been angry at the time, and probably going faster than I should have been, has produced a guilt that I've held for many decades." Again, Ben, underscoring what you mentioned earlier about our incredible capacity to feel for these animals that that we may injure. There were a couple things that were just really sweet to read about, like the brigades of people who try to help salamanders <laughs> cross the road <laughs> safely, and and also the people in Australia trying to help, you know, wombats and joeys. Do you want to just talk a little bit about those projects, those wildlife yeah, carers? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The carers in in Australia were that that was a sort of a truly inspiring thing to to witness even if it was extremely sad so you know in australia the the all of the the animals are marsupials right which means that they carry their young in a, a little pouch they carry their their babies their joeys and you know what happens as a result of that is you know sometimes uh, a driver will hit a wallaby or a wombat or a kangaroo and the the, the mother unfortunately will die but the the baby the joey will actually survive in the pouch um, so in the in the course of working on this book i, I visited 
the island of Tasmania, uh, which has some of the, the highest roadkill rates ever documented. It's you know no, known as the roadkill capital of the world. And there, there are, there are hundreds of people who just drive the roads every day looking for dead animals um, and then extracting the babies, the joeys that they find still living in, in the pouches. And then they raise those joeys to adulthood, which, you know, in the case of wombats, for example, can take uh, a couple of years. And that's, you know, two years of, you know, bottle feeding and butt wiping and medicine dispensing, right? It's, I mean, really a, almost a full-time job to care for these animals. And, you know, at, on one level, I found that to be incredibly tragic, right? I mean, here's this, you know, here's the situation where roadkill is just so abundant that it's kind of called for this, you know, this statewide response. And yet there aren't really any wildlife crossings being built to actually prevent the roadkill. You know, the state is sort of reliant on, you know, this army of volunteers to, you know, do this kind of tragic work. Um, but it was also, you know, incredibly inspiring and, and uh, you know, in, in that, again, as we've been talking about, you know, roadkill, I think, is this thing that's, you know, that's sort of invisible to, uh, you know, to, to so many uh, Americans. And here was this culture that deliberately sought out roadkill and, and was very proactive in seeking to help its victims. And, you know, that, that just, to me, that showed that the potential for a different relationship between humans and, and the wild animals that, uh, that roads afflict. Yeah. Well, the Zisner writes, Tilden Park in Contra Costa County closes one of the main roads during the annual salamander migration in one effort to mitigate the roadkill problem. So, Ben, if roads are at this point something that we will be forced to live with and figure out how to get around or how to improve the situation so that we can thrive animals and, and humans. What do you suggest? What do you think we could do to sort of act to be conscious of their impact um, and mitigate it? Yeah, it's a, you know it's a it's a it's a great question, and I, I think there's you know I think there's no single solution, right? I mean, um, you know, one one listener mentioned biking more, and you know, and certainly building out our our transit and giving giving people more mobility options that are not centered around cars, right? I think that's, you know, that's, that's profoundly important and, you know, is really at the heart of, you know, what, what the future of transportation needs to be. But, you know, at the same time, cars are part of the landscape and, you know, and sort of, and we are going to remain part of the landscape. And, you know, at times it feels defeatist to acknowledge that, but, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a fact. Um, and as a result, you know, certainly wildlife crossings are, you know, essential to, uh, to the, the solution as well, you know, giving animals more opportunities to cross roads safely and continue their migrations uh, is, is absolutely imperative. Um, you know, from an individual action standpoint, there, you know, there are some great ways, uh, you know, that listeners can be part of the solution. You know, one of them is through sort of participatory or volunteer science. You know, there's, there's something known as the, the California Roadkill Observation System, uh, which, is, which is run by, uh, by the Road Ecology Center at UC Davis uh, and basically, you know, just relies on people with smartphones noting the location and species of roadkill they see. And, you know, those observations are really important in figuring out, you know, these roadkill hotspots that can be solved through wildlife crossing. So it's an issue that we can all be part of. We can all be road ecologists, potentially. Well, Ben Goldfarg, thank you so much for writing this book and for coming on to tell us about it. Thank you so much for having me, Mina. Ben Goldfarb, conservation journalist, author of Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. My thanks to Caroline Smith and Emiko Oda for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising-Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.